The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Or should I say, hello. 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 In 1846, a notice appeared in a Philadelphia newspaper describing Edgar Allan Poe's condition and asking people to come to his aid. For Poe was, quote, without money and without friends, end quote. Poe was indignant, even though the truth was things were getting bad for him at this point. With his wife dying, his money scarce, and his mind careening out of control. With this as a backdrop, a tale of revenge occurred to him, much like the black cat in which a body is buried behind a wall in a cellar, this time the revenge would be served warm, as it were. That story was called The Cask of Amontillado, and it stands as one of a handful of Poe's greatest stories, with the unforgettable central conceit leading to some surprising uses, even in the 21st... Oh, excuse me. We have someone knocking at the door. Hello? Hello, yes? I hear a lot of Hello. scraping right here. Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar! That sound you hear. Yes. Bricks. Mm. Bricks. Mm. Bricks being placed one by one in a wall not six inches from my person. Ooh, that is not good, Edgar. Bricks set by my enemy, Fortunato. Mm. I am to be entombed, it seems. Speaking of revenge. A pity, really. I have so much more to give. <laughs> if only my saviour, that noble whelp Jack Wilson, would come to my rescue. He's right here. He's outside of Fortunato's castle, attempting to bribe the footman. <laughs> yes. But I fear he lacks sufficient funds. Mm. Too true. Too <sighs> true. Oh, won't you help him? You hard-hearted book lover. Won't you help him? And me? Mm. Oh, yes, Edgar, of course you wanted to join us. We've been talking about you for an entire month, haven't we? And we have not heard from you in person. That's Edgar Allan Poe. He's been waiting all month to join us. In person, so to speak, and what synergy we have. This is the day we are really diving into that wall, and that narrator and this author who loved stories of revenge, perhaps because he himself felt slighted all of his life. There was the newspaper article I mentioned that set him off, but he had bigger things than that, too. He was the smartest man in the room, and the smartest man on the scene, and the smartest man in his family, and yet... He had to watch lesser men and lesser writers succeed, while he himself toiled away in misery and squalor. We'll get to all that today with Evie Lee joining us for a Halloween discussion of that Edgar Allan Poe, The Cask of Amontillado. But let's do Edgar's appearance some justice. Our Patreon account is up and running, and my goodness, we have some more people to thank. These are the kind souls who have generously offered to support the show via Patreon with a small monthly contribution. 
This month, we are thanking listeners and patrons Sterling, Claudia, Drew, Sean, Bruce, Alice, Perry, Steve, Raphael, Max, Rob, Sylvia, Evan, Laura Lynn, and Francesca. Thank you so much for signing up to help support the cause of literature and the podcast. I truly do appreciate all the Patreon support, and it truly does help to make this show possible. If you'd like to join us in the Patreon world, head on over to patreon.com slash literature. Now, let's hear, let's get started. Let's hear, we haven't heard the theme song yet. Do we have a spooky theme song? Hmm? Are we waiting? All right. Should I use my spooky voice to tee it up? Edgar Allan Poe and the Cask of Amontillado. Today on The Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Happy Halloween. My goodness, I'm so glad you're here today. We have a fun one. We've reached the ultimate episode on Edgar Allan Poe for this month anyway, and we are culminating with his short story, The Cask of Amontillado, that was first published in Godey's Ladies Book in November 1846. One can only imagine how Godey's ladies responded to that story. Let's hear a listener email before we begin. This one comes from Jean-Paul. Subject, Edgar Allan Poe. Hi, Jack Wilson. I love the podcast. It is a bright beacon in these dreary times. I have taken immense pleasure in your recent works on the great Edgar Allan Poe. I must make a shameful confession. In my youth, when literature still had the shine of the new, I was self-conscious and easily influenced. I had been reading Harold Bloom's titanic works of criticism. While there are useful and even brilliant observations in his books, I had no confidence in my own taste, and so I took his word as the authority on great writing. Bloom did not shy away from dismissing and criticizing Poe, not to miss characterize his views, but he seemed to think Poe was hardly worth anything. At the time, I absorbed his notions and consequently never read Poe. Last year, I was taking a course in detective fiction, and we read Poe's Murders at the Rue Morgue and The Purloined Letter. I was entranced. I ran out and got my hands on a collection of Poe stories, and with great glee, I gorged myself. While critics like Bloom can make bad-faith arguments about the validity of his verse and the negativity of Poe's universe, I feel as though Poe speaks to our need for rationality and the way forces deprive us of it. Also, I find Poe to be immensely funny. The cask of Amontillado is a riot, one which myself and my partner seem to reference almost daily. I feel great regret for my Poe-starved youth. I'm glad that your podcast carries the torch for Poe and his mad genius. Thank you for the wonderful podcast, Jean-Paul. Well, Jean-Paul, it's never too late. <laughs> Even though, what was it, youth has the shine of youth. No, literature no longer has the shine of the new for you. That's fine. I'm glad you came around on Edgar Allan Poe. He's a source of fun and delight, a fascinating creature, and one I'm glad literature has in its ranks. There's room for Harold Bloom and Edgar Allan Poe in my world. I just had a 
Yeah, I just had an image of Edgar walling up old Harold. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> that one's going to take a while to dispel. Jeez. Sometimes I think I'm the madman. Okay, back to reality. But can't you just picture that? Oh, they should have filmed that when Professor Bloom was alive. He could have been playing Fortunato. I've seen drawings where he kind of looks like Fortunato. I think he might have been who Poe had in mind a hundred and some years earlier. Well, set that aside. No disrespect to the uh, the good professor. May he rest in peace. Harold down there in the cellar. <laughs> I'm still picturing it. Harold down there in the cellar reciting Milton backwards. While Edgar goes to work with his cement and his trowel. Scrape, scrape, scrape. Goodbye, my critic. Yikes. Someone should check the basements at Yale or NYU or wherever the heck Bloom was. I'm kidding, of course. Edgar kept his ruthlessness for his fiction, as far as we know. Speaking of which, we are indeed carrying the torch for Poe and his mad genius, and today we are carrying it underground as we visit the world of the Cask of Amontillado with our friend Evie Lee a vice president at the Literature Supporters Club, Mike's Joint. We'll have all that, plus the story itself, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Evie Lee, a vice president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's here to talk about the cask of Amontillado. Okay, Evie, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hi, Jack. I am happy to be here um, back to back like this. I'm excited. Yeah, well, we are. This one is going to run right by Halloween. So happy Halloween. Thank you. Where do you rank Halloween among your favorite holidays? Is it up there with Christmas and Thanksgiving or somewhere below that? It's definitely below those two. <laughs> I, 
you know, we weren't, we didn't celebrate it growing up. Ah. So I did not get the, the full benefit yeah. that a lot of people do. Oh, so you, you, weren't, uh, you weren't in costumes and trick-or-treating? Not until I had my own kid and I dragged him around just so that I could experience it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that that's interesting because I have only liked it as a kid and a parent. I was not one of those. I think I've been to one Halloween party when I was uh, grown up and it was very fun, but it's not the kind of thing that I looked, you know, like in my 20s, I didn't look forward to Halloween that much. Uh, I, for me, it was all nostalgia about when I was a kid running around the neighborhood, you know, trick-or-treating. And then it was the eagerness of taking my own kids out trick-or-treating and, and having that fun with them. But yeah, I am not, although October is my favorite month and I like, mm-hmm. uh, the leaves falling and I like pumpkins and that kind of thing. I don't really like being scared. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you go to haunted houses or uh, do you watch scary movies or do you seek out that experience? When I was younger, I did. Uh, I, I have been to a one haunted house in my life and I was terrified and I just have <laughs> not been back. But um, I used to watch scary movies and I used to read Stephen King. Mm. But um, as I got older, weirdly enough, the stuff scares me more. So I, I try to stay away from, mm. from that. What do you think you were doing when you were interested in the scary movies? Do you think you were trying to test yourself in some way to see if you could take it? Or do you think you had a, a fascination with, with death or what was, have you ever tried mm-hmm. to figure out why those books or movies appealed to you? You know, I think that the, the books appealed because it was just such a stimulating story. A mm, lot of times, you, yeah. you know, you can read and it just, you know, unless you're patient and, and thoughtful, you, you might not engage with the story fully. But when you're reading something that's well-written and creepy, you just feel it, right? Mm, can, like an adrenaline it's, it's rush. A, exactly, exactly. Um, so so that's there. And, and then I think with the scary movies, I just, I, you know, my mom likes to be scared. And so she did it and I did it. And I just never took it seriously. Mm. But for whatever reason now, like if I watch the wrong thing or read the wrong thing, I might dream about it. And that's, and that's no fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of find that too. I mean, I, I have a, a harder time. Maybe the older you get, the less, the more vulnerable you feel. But I, I don't like heights as, you know, I used to be, I would mm-hmm. climb up a ladder and I'd walk along a ledge and that kind of thing. And, and I've kind of lost my ability to do that or diving in off of a high diving board or, you know, there's mm-hmm. different things that I could do kind of fearlessly when I was younger that I'm now not as into. And I think scary movies are kind of in that category where I just think, uh, why would I want to do this to myself? I'm not going to enjoy the experience of being scared. Right. Speculative fiction borders on horror now, and that's a really popular genre. And it, sometimes I do compel myself to watch these things, and I wonder why am I doing this to myself? But, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me, uh, since it is Halloween in the spirit of Halloween, let me dabble a little bit in scaring you here and ask you to <laughs> uh, give me your sense of these in order of creepiness. 
Uh, these are some stereotypical settings for scary stories. So being all alone in a dark house, being in an empty cornfield at noon on a summer's day with no one around, uh, walking mm-hmm. through a graveyard at night, being buried alive, and burying someone alive. Which of those do you find the... the let's start with the least disturbing. Which of those would you... I gave you those choices. Which is the one you would pick first? Being all alone in a dark house. I would oh, yeah. curl up and read a book. <laughs> <laughs> there so could you'd be a storm okay. raging. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. What's second? Uh, I think um, walking through a, a graveyard, that's that's not that frightening as long you as it was. Yeah. Yeah bright and sunny out okay and third i'm um, gonna guess is the cornfield yeah because i could be lost yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's funny that's yeah. the one from north by northwest where hitchcock had said you know every scary scene has someone in a dark house or walking down a, through a dark alley or something and i'm gonna have mine in bright daylight but it's gonna be in the middle of this cornfield and then the plane chases him mm. Cary Grant but mm-hmm. it's the idea I've been in situations like that where things can kind of feel eerie when you're in a place like that where there's no cover you know and you're mm-hmm. you feel like you're alone and and there's just a lot of I don't know the corn can kind of feel start to feel a little creepy as right. if it's it, alive <laughs> right and if you I mean if you go to the um the Halloween pop-ups right the mm. orchards and the, the yeah. scary houses, they have a corn maze. And I mm, tried yeah. the corn maze once, got turned around, and decided that's not what I wanted to do with my time ever again. Yeah. Um, and, so, no, it is, yeah. And you feel vulnerable, like people who know their way around this could really attack me here. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, it's so the last thing. two, I kind of thought this was interesting because it occurred to me, if if someone was going to be walled up, mm-hmm. I think I would almost find it less scary if someone was walling me up than if I found myself being the one doing the walling up. I mean, I'm more when I when I read the story, Cask of Amontillado, I'm more creeped out. And I guess I guess we're gonna listen to the story, so I shouldn't uh, give too much of it away here. But mm-hmm. you know, there it is someone being entombed. And mm-hmm. I find it almost creepier to think of the person doing the entombing than actually the person who is from that person's point of view. Yeah. Well, so I will pick the inverse. I would be terrified of being entombed. Okay. And a part of that <laughs> has to do with, you know, I don't even want to be uh, buried. I'm, I'm one for cremation. Yeah. I don't, don't want to be eaten yeah. by maggots. Yeah, and the coffin and all of that. Okay, so do you have any personal settings that are scarier than the ones that I mentioned with the dark house and the graveyard at night? I was thinking walking through a dark woods or or falling off a cliff or are there any do you have any go-to nightmares? Uh, you know, I think that I think just the one where you're buried is what what would get me where you feel like you can't breathe, mm. you can't take a deep breath. Yeah. And you and you can't move. That's 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 it for me. Mm, yeah, well, Poe certainly uh, 
has plenty of stories uh, that will take you into that world. Okay, so anything else we should know about the story before we begin here? I think that um, I think people should just sit back and enjoy it. It's a it's a bit of a romp. Yeah, it is. It is a, a accelerator pedal uh, to the floor. Yeah, and I did yeah. want to mention uh, niter. So people might not be familiar with that's a calcium like deposit that forms in cellars. And in the story, I think of it serving a purpose kind of like cobwebs. It it suggests how old and undisturbed the cellar is and just a, a clamminess or creepiness. And then uh, Madoc is a red wine. The Cask of Amontillado the thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne, as I best could. But when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled, but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmery, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack, but in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting, part-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, "'My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met.' How remarkably well you are looking today, but I have received a pipe of what passes for a Montiato, and I have my doubts. How, said he, a Montiato, a pipe, impossible, and in the middle of the carnival? I have my doubts, I replied, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado. I have my doubts. Amontillado. And I must satisfy them. Amontillado. As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucrezi, 
If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me, Lucrezi cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no, I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucrezi, I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no, it is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado. You have been imposed upon, and as for Lucrezi, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, and putting on a mask of black silk, and drawing a rocalaire closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and, giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together upon the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. "'The pipe!' he said. "'It is farther on,' said I, "'but observe the white web-work which gleams from these cavern walls.' He turned towards me, and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. "'Niter?' he asked at length. "'Niter!' I replied. "'How long have you had that cough?' "'Oh! Oh! 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 My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. "'It is nothing,' he said at last. "'Come,' I said with decision. "'We will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy.' as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucrezi. Enough, he said. The cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True, true, I replied, and indeed I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily. But you should use all proper caution." A draft of this Madoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle, which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mold. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, to the buried that repose around us. And I to your long life. He again took my arm, and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. 
The Montresors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door in a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lachesit. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the mid-oak. We had passed through long walls of piled skeletons, with casks and puncheons intermingling, into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough... It is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another draft of the Medoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend, he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A Mason? A Mason, I replied. A sign, he said. A sign. It is this, I answered, producing from beneath the folds of my rocalaire a trowel. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces, but let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on and descending again, arrived at a deep crypt, in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side, the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior crypt or recess in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depth of the recess. Its termination, the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed! I said, herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucrezi, he is an ignoramus. 
interrupted my friend as he stepped unsteadily forward while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more and I had him fettered to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet, horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nitre. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No, then I must positively leave you. But I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado! ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied, the Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance to the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in a great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low, moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. And I laid the second tier, and the third and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and holding the flambeau over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess, but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed. I aided. I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, 
<laughs> a very good joke, indeed, an excellent jest. We will have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo, <laughs> over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will not they be awaiting us at the palazzo, the Lady Fortunato and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said, let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor! Yes, I said, for the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud, Fortunato! No answer. I called again. Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick. It was the dampness of the catacombs that made it so. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requiescat. Okay, we're back. Evie, what was your impression of the cask of Amontillado? I, um, you know, I it was quick mm-hmm. and... It was, it was nuanced, and it leaves a lot to the imagination, which yeah. I think means that it's a, you know, it's a really, really well crafted short story, and yeah. I, I just enjoy it. So, by the imagination, do you mean like why the narrator was doing this? <laughs> what? <laughs> Not, yeah. Like, what's the narrator's motivation here? Did you pick up on that? Not at all? only. Yeah, but but yes, what is his motivation and why would, <laughs> like, what's his relationship yeah. with that? Yeah, like, how can this man follow him into this deep crypt <laughs> knowing that he had somehow wronged him? Yeah, that's, I mean, it, that's the only thing the story gives us is that Fortunato insulted him. That's it. Yeah. That's the only thing. And then there's yeah. a little bit of a suggestion that maybe Fortunato was was kind of a quack or weak or he held himself out as superior. And so mm-hmm. maybe he was a bit of a, a braggart or, you know, supercilious. And then he insulted the narrator and the narrator decides, OK, you know, that's, that's enough for me. Yeah. We're going to remedy this wrong. But it is that's one of the things I love about the story is it's so pure in that sense. You know, there's not if it was a long and protracted argument, we might feel mm-hmm. like we were on the side of the narrator or we understood the narrator, how he had been driven to this point or something. And instead, it's more like, well, Poe's just handing us this scenario. <laughs> Here's a guy who's planning to to bury another guy behind brickwork for almost no reason. And mm-hmm. whose side are you going to be on here? 
And what are you going to make of this scenario? Did you find yourself on the side of the narrator hoping that he would succeed? No, I, I, I didn't. And because he, because there's no reason for why he's doing what he's doing. It's yeah. hard to, to support right. him. Right. Uh, it, it's one thing if you think that he, you know, had an affair with, right. you know, right. someone had an affair with his wife or, or, or ruined him financially. Ruined me. Yeah. The County Monte Cristo, <laughs> like that's good revenge. Right. right? But this, this is right. kind of like he insulted him. You yeah. feel like he just, you know, said the wrong word or, you know, called him the wrong name or something. Right. Yeah. You were not, not on the side of the narrator. I found myself kind of on the side of the narrator. I, I felt like I wanted to be, if I had to pick one person to be, I'd want to be the narrator other than, mm-hmm. rather than Fortunato. But yeah, morally, it's very hard to justify that. <laughs> and I kind of felt like in a way, you know, it's like the the old uh, Breaking Bad situation mm-hmm. or Lolita, where the narrator is clearly in the wrong, but we're so mm-hmm. drawn to protagonists just instinctively and narrators instinctively that it kind of makes you start to question like, well, what what is it that I'm doing here? I'm rooting for the bad guy. Right. You know, it's just the power of fiction that if it's the protagonist and the narrator, you kind of feel like his challenge is your challenge and you want to see him overcome whatever obstacles he's got in front of him. And it it's it's twisted. It twists you around as a mm-hmm. reader. The one reason I, I can't support the narrator here is because he is so so good an actor that uh, his victim Fortunato has no reason to suspect that he's in danger. Yeah. And I, and I put myself in the victim's shoes and thinking, you know, I've been around people who maybe haven't had my best interest in heart. And I just had no inkling mm. that there was a problem yeah. until it was too late until and so, they changed you to the wall and and pulled out their trowel yeah. and started started laying yeah, the bricks down exactly <laughs> exactly like they they laid their trap so well that i just i missed all the signs and i i just you know i'm with i'm with fortunato right that right. guy narrator yeah <laughs> although there is something very funny about this too. I don't know if you picked up on that. I found I found the scenario, general scenario frightening. You know, here's a guy who's walking a guy through this this basement or this almost like a dungeon in order to to wall him up and and kill him, bury him alive behind this wall. But but there are also these moments of humor. Mm-hmm. Where, where Fortunato says, "I shall not die of a cough," and the narrator says, "True, true." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then yeah. there's a part where he drinks to your long life, which I thought was kind of a dark humor, and mm-hmm. uh, the exchange at the end where Fortunato says, "Let us be gone," and he says, "Yes, let us be gone." He says, "For the love yeah, of God, yeah. yes, for the love of God." <laughs> it's like you—you you get yeah. the feeling that Poe realizes uh, he kind of has to have his tongue in cheek here a little bit. That the scenario of this guy is uh, there. There's something comical about his ruthlessness in murdering this guy just over an insult. Yeah, yeah, nope, I get it, and that's why I mean, it's it's there. There are all those little nuggets of of humor that sort of levity as they walk through as you describe it, of a a dungeon where their bones stacked up and and he's single-mindedly 
saying, let's go get this wine. This has got to be great. Like, I want to go find this. Is it worth it to go through this? <laughs> yeah. 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 He, and he just, he preys on his, you know, he keeps saying like, oh, well, the way he tricks him to get him in there, you know, oh, well, yeah, you, yeah. you, uh, you, you, I'll, I'll go get someone else who can analyze this better than, ah, oh, you know, Fortunato is <laughs> insulted at the idea. Uh, and then yeah. the, the, maybe the funniest part is actually like a gag. This, this almost seemed like it could have come out of the Simpsons or something. Fortunato says, obviously you're not a Mason when he does that secret right. sign. Yeah. Obviously you're not a Mason. Yeah. Yeah. Of course I am. And then he pulls out like, an, like he's a literal Mason with his trowel. Yeah. And his... <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I thought that was hilarious. I, I laughed out loud at that one. Yeah. That was funny. Yeah. Uh, was so funny. here's the other thing. Does the narrator have any guilt here? I don't think so. It doesn't I, seem like it I does did it. not pick up any guilt he actually sat down in the middle of working to enjoy Fortunato's scream <laughs> of, of, of for help and then when he stopped when he quieted he you know finished the work yeah no i did not get any sense of, of remorse we take it so for granted i mean the telltale heart is like that right it's all about this guilt that you can't get rid of this mm-hmm. this guilt and and we take it yeah. so for granted with dostoevsky and crime and punishment and the whole it's almost like the whole genre of murder is can you live with yourself afterwards or will there be some kind of guilt that overcomes you and leads you mm-hmm. to confess or leads you to confess to someone else or just leads you into insanity. And instead, this guy is just like, yeah, for 50 years he's been in there and no one's ever found him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's relishing it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. is the narrator, would you say that he's insane? I, you know, no, I, yeah. I don't know the diagnostic really word, but it's not, yeah. yeah, he's not insane. He's, he's very maybe stoic in the sense that he doesn't feel yeah. guilt. I think a sociopath, is that the right word? But no, I don't think he's insane. He's just, yeah. he's rational to a fault, right? Like yeah. you insulted me, you deserve to die and suffer. And then I'm going to, that's, I've, I've sort of checked that box off. You're punished and then I can move forward with my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's such a pure story. Uh, it's like a, such a pure Halloween story. It's like the story of the couple in the car, and then they hear a sound, and then there's a hook, and the you know you you've heard mm-hmm. that one. There's, they think about the the man with one arm or something, and then they drive away, and there's a hook in the roof of their car, and and they realize that they weren't imagining the sound after all and that right. kind of thing. And you know, like there's nothing in that that's about psychology or guilt or or motivation or or can you live with yourself after a crime or any of that it's just mood and activity and action mm-hmm. and that's kind of what this is i mean it, it's a great story to kind of tell to kids or you know because it's it's like it's not literary in that sense it's right. it's just purely uh, almost like a yarn or you know, a tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a, a fable, right? Or a yeah. what is it, an urban legend, right? Yeah, yeah. right, right. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. anything else you'd like to mention about the cask of Amontillado? I hope you guys enjoyed it. It's fun. And maybe when your kids are a little older, maybe 13, share it. <laughs> I don't know about burying alive <laughs> otherwise, but no, it's, it's a fun story. And it's a great way to ring in or ring out the Halloween season. 
Yeah, it is. I'm using this one as a centerpiece this year, and I left a few good stories for next year. So we're not covering in our poem month uh, the Telltale Heart, the Mask of the Red Death, which is very uh, timely these days, or the Fall of the House of Usher, Lygia, the Pit and the Pendulum. So, Evie, will you come back to help us again next year? I would absolutely love to uh, come back. I actually like October as well. It's my favorite month, too. Mm. Evie Lee, thank you for joining me today on the History of Literature, and happy Halloween. Thank you, Jack. Happy Halloween to you, too. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Evie Lee for joining us on this spooky weekend. Have fun and stay safe, everyone. This is a strange time of year and an especially strange time in an especially strange year. I hope you enjoyed the Edgar Allan Poe Month. Next month will be something different and hopefully just as much fun, so please do subscribe so you don't miss out. We're part of the Podglomerate Network at www.thepodglomerate.com and LitHub Radio. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate, a Sonic Universe.